Hi, it's Nick Brown, Global Health Editor for ADC. I'm delighted to be able to welcome Rob Clarson, a professor of paediatrics in Eastern Ontario. He's a paediatric hematologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, whose area of special interest within hematology is in quality of life. Um, Rob, welcome. Oh, it's been my pleasure. We'll be discussing the, the recent paper you wrote for the global section on thalassemia, which is an area which I think a lot of people think they understand, but actually when they're honest about it, are a little hazy on both the physiology as well as the management, as well as the global picture, which is why I was so keen to get this paper out there. I, I wonder whether we could start with a, a little bit about background about the global burden of disease in thalassemias, just to remind people. Thalassemia, and I think Many of the listeners will probably know more about thalassemia minor because there's parts of the world where up to 20% of the population is a carrier for thalassemia, by far the most common genetic disorder worldwide. And the thought being that in big populations, it's protective against malaria, which is, sort of follows the malaria belt, especially, you know, the Mediterranean, South Asia, and Southeast Asia is sort of where it's the most common. We do see it in North America and in, in Europe, but obviously the highest prevalence is in areas of the world, the Mediterranean and the Indian, those areas is where this is very, very common disorder and it's a huge burden on their healthcare system. Yeah, and a bit about the genetics and physiology, I, I think that's poorly understood as well. If you could give the very brief outline of where the, where the genetic problem lies and what repercussions that has in terms of physiological effects. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit complicated because there's the... So I think just to remind everybody, the most common hemoglobin you have is hemoglobin A, or adult hemoglobin, and that's made of two alphas and two betas. That's 95% of the hemoglobin we have as adults. So the problem in, in thalassemia is either in the alpha component of it or the beta. Beta is a little bit more easier to understand because you have two, two beta genes. You have one from your mother and one from your father to get the thalassemia major, or we call transfusion-dependent thalassemia, you just have deletions from both parents. So it's an autosomal recessive disorder. So it's pretty straightforward. And, and that's the one that we commonly think of, and that's the one that presents, you know, usually when you change over from fetal hemoglobin, baby's born, it's mainly fetal hemoglobin, and then over a few months it changes over to adult hemoglobin. So usually the, the child presents around the age somewhere between four and eight months of age is when they present with the severe forms and severe anemia needing transfusions. So that's, I think, what people typically think of when they think of the thalassemia diseases. The alpha one is a bit more complicated because alpha is so important. In fact, fetuses can't survive without alpha. I think over time we've developed so that we have two genes from each parent. So we end up with four alpha globin genes. So you can end up with any combination of one, two, three, and four genes deleted. When all genes are deleted, it's incompatible with life, and fetuses won't survive, so you get hydrops fatalis. Some places I know in Toronto here, they've actually transfused these babies intrauterine, so a few of them can survive, but in general, they don't survive. So we think typically more of the three-gene deletion, which is what everybody knows as the hemoglobin H disease. Fortunately, that tends to be a less severe form. It's called thalassemia intermedia or non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia. So so the alpha thalassemia, you can kind of think of it in general, the alpha thalassemia tends to give you the non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia, whereas the beta thalassemia disease tends to give you the transfusion-dependent. Obviously, it's a more complicated than that, but that's kind of a simplistic way of summarizing. 
that's very helpful. And in terms of health effects and quality of life effects, what can a child or a family with a child typically expect? Let's look at beta major, I guess, is, is the commonest clinical problem. So beta thalassemia major or the transfusion-dependent thalassemia, as I say, really from the age, two to eight months of age, they start on regular blood transfusions. Really, every three to five weeks, they get a blood transfusion and they need it for life. So it's basically transfusions for life. The fortunate situation in you know in Europe and North America, we have very safe blood, which is good because you, these patients will end up getting about a thousand transfusions over their their lifetime. So they're going to be exposed to a lot of different potential pathogens. Fortunately, the risk of things like HIV and hepatitis are very low, so we can get these patients through their lifespan without getting them a significant transfusion, which I think is one of the main problems when you're worried about developing countries is that they don't have the the testing that we have to have that safe blood. So the problem, they often get, especially hepatitis C is a very common infection in developing low-income countries and middle-income countries. They don't have the testing of the blood system that we have. So that's kind of the big first piece is the, the transfusions, which in actual fact is not too big a deal. It means one day a month, these patients are coming to clinic and getting a transfusion, and they may feel a bit more fatigued and not quite up to snub. But if you actually saw them, they look like any other child. It's very hard to pick them out in a crowd. The next problem is that after about a year of being transfused, you get iron overload because every transfusion gives you a unit of blood gives you gives you 250 milligrams of iron. So you very rapidly build up iron in their bodies. And that's actually what kills many of these children, especially in developing countries, is that the iron overload gets into the heart, gets into the liver, gets into the endocrine system, into the pituitary, and they often die by the time they hit their 20s. In fact, interesting, I was trying to do a study with an investigator in the Punjab, and I needed 50 children and 50 adults to test out this quality of life tool. And he said, 50 children, no problem. I've got lots of children with thalassemia, but I really don't have 50 adults because basically all the patients die around the age of 18. But to me, that was a good example of what the problems are in in developing countries because you need to get rid of that iron or the patient will die. Fortunate thing is we've got very good iron chelators now, but they're very expensive. So I think that's where the problem is. And so these patients, in the past, the iron chelator had to be, it was a needle put into their arm, and it ran over 10 hours every night. So it was actually quite an impact on their quality of life, putting these needles in every night before they go to sleep. Fortunately, we now have oral agents that have come out, which makes things significantly better, although they definitely, they all have their side effects. GI upset is a common one. So that can impact on their quality of life as well. But overall, in North America and Europe, these patients have a pretty good quality of life. Basically, they need to get these transfusions once a month. They need to be on the chelator, which fortunately now, for the most part, is oral. And as long as that works, they're just having to take a pill every day and a transfusion once a month. So it's actually not too bad. And how widely available is the oral medication, LMICs? It's presumably fairly hard to come by. Well... You know, I looked at the cost in Canada, and it's roughly $40 a day. So it's over $1,000 a month, so you think it's between fifteen and $20,000 a year. So that's obviously 
far too expensive. Well, I mean, that's too expensive for our families to pay for, but there's no way you can afford that in low income and even medium income countries. I know some of the companies in India are trying to come up with a cheaper alternative, and I don't know how readily available those are. And and so I, I certainly can't give you the availability of that, but I, I don't. I know it's not readily available because certainly this is a big problem in many developing countries, and this is so common in in the, the Middle East. You know, my my colleague who worked on this paper with me, he's from Iran, and he says, you know, they have huge populations of patients with this disorder, and they just can't afford, unless they're very well off and they have good insurance companies, they can't afford the chelation therapy. Is there anything else in the pipeline in LMICs other than the new Indian drug, which is on the horizon somewhere? Is there, is there anything else foreseeable future? I think to me the three big areas that are a problem if you're in a low-income country is, well, A, getting safe blood. So hopefully there's work afoot to make sure your blood is safe because if if you don't have safe blood, you know, that's a real problem. And then your patients all get hepatitis C, which, you know, can cause liver disease and hepatocellular carcinoma. That's a huge problem. Uh, trying to find uh, cheaper chelators. And then lastly, to monitor these patients, you need to have fairly sophisticated monitoring. What we use is an MRI to measure liver iron, which obviously many of these places don't have access to. Ferritin is kind of a cheap alternative, but it's not nearly as accurate. So fortunately, there's at least something you can use, but that's it. And then finally, the way to deal with it, probably the cheapest way to deal with it is bone marrow transplant. Problems with that, and if you happen to have a matched brother or sister, then that's a fairly viable alternative. If you don't have a matched sibling, then you know the risks are fairly high. You know, and many they don't have ready access to get transplants. I know particularly the group in France does a lot of transplants. Patients from Africa and the Middle East, the Francophone countries, they come to Paris and get transplanted just because it really does kind of make economic sense. Yeah, and follow up is reasonably straightforward if you get a good match. Exactly, yeah. Rob, that's fascinating. It looks we're in a position where things are, are tantalizingly close, but they're within touching distance, but there's still a number of obstacles to be overcome to really move forward for the majority of the world's children who have thalassemia. Thank you so much for, for joining us to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure.